Listener Production. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is A Lie. Your mum will decide she is a lesbian and she'll pick her new lover over you. <laughs> Get ready, mum. To this day. Get ready to say the right thing. Just got to watch yourself with what you say with this one. To this day, I'm not sure if my mum is genuinely bisexual or if her brief fling with a woman was all about the cash. I suppose that if, out of desperation, you can sell your body to a bald man in Wagga Wagga whose head is covered in coconut oil, then letting a lesbian lick your clit when times are tough would at least be a more pleasurable walk in the park. (laughs) God. (laughs) I don't like reading this in front of you. And times were tough. After her split with Brian, the homeowner, Mum, Taylor and I became a kind of Blue Mountains gypsy family, living with whoever would take us in. First stop was with some man Mum quickly started dating who lived down by the local pool. I don't remember much about him. I want to say his name was George. I doubt my mum even cared, to be honest. There was a roof over our heads, which meant she was doing her job. At least, there was a roof over their heads. Mum could only convince her new boyfriend to let us move in if I didn't actually reside inside the house, so she generously provided me with a second-hand caravan that I could live in out the front. It will be fun, she said, like your own little apartment. I had almost come around to the idea, imagining myself hosting lavish TV viewing parties with my friends inside my state-of-the-art motorhome, when the reality pulled into the driveway attached to the back of Mum's dinged-up Nimbus, which in the caravan's presence now looked like a Bentley. There was no little apartment in sight. This thing was basically a hatchback with a motor, and I don't know whom my mother bought it from, but there's no doubt in my mind the man in question is certainly now in prison for something like letting a dog lick his penis or being caught watching women in the shower while wearing a ball gown in the bushes. It took me about two days to clear out all the porno mags, cigarette butts and empty peanut butter jars. Spur must have covered every surface. I'm surprised I didn't get pregnant just by stepping in there. There was space for a mattress, but it was so tiny, I'm not sure even the smallest standard mattress on earth would fit. Where did the weirdos who lived in these tiny caravans get their bizarre tiny mattresses? Was there a store where they all lined up, each hoping to purchase their new bed as quickly as possible so they could hurry back to the privacy of their sad caravan and keep smothering their bodies with honey and cheese spread? There was also a few cupboards, a small fold-out table and a sink, which, given I had no water connection, was purely decorative. You really should be concerned about your place in the world when you have a sink that's only decorative. And to top it all off, there was no electricity connection, which meant that after dark, it was just me and my torch. Most nights I would get terrified and go inside by about 9pm, begging mum and her random boyfriend, again, George, maybe Trevor, to let me sleep on the couch. I was scared of being raped and murdered, but mostly I just didn't want to die somewhere that had recently been the scene of a jerk-off session involving peanut butter in a magazine called Miss Mama Jugs. I may have been a 14-year-old following her bipolar alcoholic mum around in a caravan, but even I had standards. Next up came a brief stay with friends mum had made at the Lawson pub. I didn't mind the time we spent there, actually, since most of the people lived in and around the main strip of the local shops, so whenever Taylor and I were hungry and couldn't find mum, we'd just walk straight into a store and get fed. 
I'm not sure if mum had organised some kind of feed my kids tab system, but Taylor and I took advantage of it regardless. We would sit at the Magic Mountain Cafe eating free nachos and getting the familiar look of pity from the owner, who seemed to know something about where mum was that we didn't. But we were so used to getting that look from concerned adults, it didn't bother us in the slightest. We would just order as many free milkshakes as we could while we still had the chance. After a few weeks of taking advantage of that situation, it seemed like Mum had finally found something a little more stable. An unsuspecting man who lived a bit farther up the mountain in Wentworth Falls was looking for a boarder to rent a room. He had three kids at home and somehow Mum convinced him to let her and Taylor move in while I would stay in my jizz-infested caravan out the front. His son and two daughters were all around Taylor's age and they became convinced that our mum and their dad were going to fall in love and we'd all end up in some kind of trailer trash version of the Brady Bunch. I had zero interest in being connected to those people via marriage or any other means. And I think, despite the fact she was currently enduring the indignity of sharing a bunk bed with her seven-year-old daughter, neither did mum. The more her possible Mike Brady made advances on her, the more she backed away. She could have very easily made a smooth transition into that man's bed, but it turns out Wentworth Falls Brady Bunch was not a shift she wanted to take on. So, feeling closed in and sick of living like a nomadic gypsy, although she wasn't the one in the fucking caravan, Mum decided it was time for us to rent our own house. Now, renting your own house is a nice idea in theory, but my mum didn't like to pay for things. She liked other people to pay for things, and house renting is generally something that you're expected to pay for. She, of course, bit off way more than she could chew and found us the nicest, biggest house we had ever lived in. The sperm caravan was sold. Taylor and I each got our own room. Even Rhiannon decided it was worth coming back and putting up with the drinking and screaming and suicide attempts if it meant she could live in that house. But a big house and a nice house is also an expensive house, and if we wanted to stay, Mum was going to have to find herself a temporary Richard Gear to foot the bill. Unfortunately, she had pretty much depleted all of the Blue Mountains' resources when it came to men, but my mum is a resourceful woman, and she really, really wanted to stay in that big, nice house. Enter Pam the lesbian. Pam liked to wear vests. Long, baggy vests over plain t-shirts and sensible jeans. She was a lot older than mum, I'd say about 50, and her greying hair was styled into one of the most glorious mullets I had ever seen. She didn't wear makeup, and her face was lined from years of doing what I assume all women with mullets do, hold the stop slow sign at construction sites. Her voice was gravelly from years of smoking, and she drove a 1980s sports car that she proudly called the Mean Machine. Clearly, my mum had decided that if she was going to be a lesbian, she was going to go all out. Um, dude, why is your mum going out with a totally butch lesbo, my friend asked after spotting Pam dropping me off at school. Excuse me, I replied indignantly, a little proud of my new status as a child of two mums. I believe the term you're looking for is homosexual lady with a mullet. And I don't know, I think because she's paying our rent. And she was paying our rent and buying mum lots of presents and buying me lots of presents. It looked as though after so many years of searching for the perfect Richard Gear to go with her pretty woman, mum had found him and he was a she. Pam the lesbian was besotted with mum, besotted. I don't think she'd ever been in the vicinity of so much femininity in her life. She would lean over to light mum's cigarettes and stare into her eyes as if she were the luckiest woman in the world. Mum would then look around at the beautiful house she wasn't paying for and think the exact same thing. But I figured if anyone was lucky in the whole situation, it was me. 
Pam was like a mulleted ATM and I could convince her to buy me pretty much anything I wanted. It started off small at first, going into mum's room early in the morning and asking for lunch money, knowing that the naked lady in bed next to her was so desperate to impress that she would definitely give it to me. I saw a pair of billabong parachute pants in a shop at Springwood and Pam had bought them for me within two days. You like those, don't you? She asked, simultaneously beaming with pride and looking to my mum for approval. I really do, I said, playing it up more than was necessary. Mum, Pam is so good to us. You really should stay with her forever. Ka-ching! When my friend and I wanted to catch a train down the mountain to watch a movie at Penrith Plaza, I immediately turned to her and dramatically said, don't worry, I've got this. Then I whipped out the -the state-of-the-art Nokia Pam had bought me. It had snake and everything and called her. An hour later, my friend and I were on our way to Penrith with 50 bucks. My conscience was starting to ping a little at this point when it came to Pam, but the friend in question was a cool one who I had been trying and no doubt failing desperately to impress. We had connected purely by accident. There's no way a girl like Bianca would ever willingly initiate a friendship with someone like me. She had massive boobs and pashed boys and I didn't even pluck my eyebrows. But we shared a mutual friend and when word got out that I had no curfew and a mum at home who would let me come and go as I pleased, I think she saw an opportunity to use my house as an alibi. She would come over for a video night sleepover and then we would take off and do whatever. The problem was, I really did just want to have a video night sleepover. Yes, I had the ability to tell my mum I was going out and not come home for two days, but I was too much of a dweeb to take advantage of it. I just wanted to sit in my room and watch TV and listen to Backstreet Boys CDs, and maybe write the occasional Oscars acceptance speech, a habit I still clung to despite having grown old enough to understand that I most likely wasn't going to be recognised for writing Grease 3. But, as bloody usual, I was hypnotised by cool, and Bianca had it in spades, which meant I would go to some ridiculous lengths to impress her. Every time she suggested something that confused and or horrified me, I would just act like I was totally on the same page. She once forced me to go to a house party with the cool group, and I spent the entire night watching TV in the living room by myself, while everyone else was in the backyard drinking from secret goon sacks. I could just never relax around those guys. It was like they spoke a language I didn't understand. I was the clueless foreign exchange student whom nobody wanted to have awkward conversations with. On our way to Penrith after gouging Pam, Bianca said we should skip the movie and just hang out. Hanging out at Penrith Plaza basically just meant you sat on the steps outside the shopping centre and tried to look cool, while a bunch of other teenagers were also sitting on the steps trying to look cool. Sometimes you would get up and do a loop of the main street and then you would go back to sitting on the steps. That was literally all you would do, all night. Sit on steps, walk around street, sit back on steps, repeat. I was devastated. I really just wanted to watch a movie, eat some popcorn and go home to bed. Now I knew I'd be hanging around Penrith all night following Bianca while she talked to random boys. We ended up being approached by a car with two guys in it, much older than us, which Bianca loved. I couldn't even talk to boys my own age, let alone two men in their 20s. I walked in silence while Bianca flirted with them through the car window. I was her mute weirdo friend, and I could definitely tell that both guys were hoping the other one would fall on his sword and hang out with me so someone would get to pash Bianca. She accepted a ride from them just to drive around, and before I could lecture her on the dangers of getting into a vehicle with people you don't know, we were off. I wanted to wear my seatbelt, but nobody else put theirs on because seatbelts were for losers, so I begrudgingly left my life in the hands of a guy wearing fubu pants. 
I was not impressed. I just wanted the driving around to be over so I could stop feeling like the penalty they were accepting in order to have big booed Bianca sit in their car. Then it was announced we'd be smoking pot, and although I'd spent the last few years living in a pot den, I'd never actually willingly inhaled so much as a cigarette. I was way out of my league. I wanted to impress Bianca, but driving around with two random guys in Penrith looking for a piece of hose that we could make into a makeshift bong was a little too much for me. The bong was passed around and I refused because I was still stoned from yesterday. I was impressed that I was able to come up with such a cool-sounding excuse on the spot. I would still be doing that in my 20s, actually, mostly when I worked at very hipster JB Hi-Fi. All the staff who worked in the music section were covered in tattoos and drank green smoothies out of jars and would talk about the bootleg cut of something to do with Bob Dylan something that kills something something. I never understood a word they were saying, but I wanted to fit in. So whenever anybody talked about a band I hadn't heard of, I would just say, I really like their early stuff. That line got me out of so many embarrassing conversations. And if, as happened a couple of times, the band had just been discovered and therefore didn't have any early stuff, I would act really smug and say, oh, I thought you were a big fan. They've been putting tracks online for years. I like to think I'm the reason many tattooed hipsters spent hours on YouTube looking for songs that didn't exist. Bong avoided, I spent the next half hour sitting in the back of the car with the unlucky guy who had ended up with me, and we patiently waited for Bianca and her new friend to finish mauling each other's faces. I could have had a revelation at that point. I could have spent the time I had to reflect on how I constantly ended up in situations where I was miserable and or humiliated. Just like when I shat my pants because I didn't want to miss out on playing with my sister's friends. Just like when I let the girl who smelled like cheese lick my fanny. I was once again stuck in a compromising position because I wanted to impress the cool kids. But it would be years before I'd make that connection. Instead, as I sat there, in the back of a random car with random guys and a random bong, and to be honest, a girl I didn't even really like that much, I came to the conclusion that I had ended up in that position because I was being punished by the universe. It was divine intervention for treating Pam the lesbian like an ATM. Someone with that glorious mullet really deserved a lot more respect. So on my way home that night, miraculously safe after getting into a car to smoke pot with two strange men, I decided I was going to start taking my mum's sham lesbian relationship more seriously, and I would definitely stop tricking her lover into buying me things, unless there was a new NSYNC CD that I really, really wanted, obviously. But my decision to treat Pam with more respect was pointless. As it turned out, Pam had been planning on getting rid of us kids for a while, and just a few days after I sat in a strange car with strange men in Penrith, I found myself in another strange car, this time with my sisters and four police officers. I couldn't believe I had ever felt bad about those billabong pants. We should have seen it coming, I suppose. Since dating Pam, Mum had started drinking virtually 24 hours a day. Usually, she at least managed to get to her shifts at the nursing home, but since her mulleted girlfriend had arrived, things for Mum had really started to go backwards. If she and Pam weren't out drinking somewhere, they were at home getting wasted while Taylor and I watched TV in the sanctuary of my bedroom. Rhiannon had taken to spending a lot more time at her boyfriend's house. There was that familiar feeling in the air. All of us recognised it, like something was about to reach boiling point. It was the feeling we all got when we knew we were about to be taken away again. Which is why none of us really expected what happened that final night. We never dreamed that mum would be the one to kick us out. It was late, maybe around 11pm. Mum and Pam the lesbian had been drinking all day. Rhiannon was home and she must have said something to piss Pam off because all of a sudden Taylor and I were distracted from our TV watching by what sounded like a fistfight going on downstairs. 
I told Taylor to stay put, and when I got to the living room, I saw Pam whipping Rhiannon as hard as she could with a telephone cord, while Mum sat by and laughed. I ran over to intervene, and Pam threw a punch in my direction. Now, Rhiannon and I had had our fair share of fights while growing up, but nothing can prepare you for having a punch swung in your direction, especially not when a very angry-looking lady with a mullet is doing the swinging. I dodged it, not particularly difficult, seeing as she was drunk out of her mind, and Rhiannon and I ran over to Mum and begged her to ask Pam to leave. Nah, fuck off, Pam screamed. Yous are the fucking ones leaving. Mum was laughing hysterically. Tell him, Lisa, tell him, Pam yelled in glee. I don't want you here anymore, Mum said. Any of you. Mum, Rhiannon said, you're just drunk. You can't make us leave. We're your kids. You're uncontrollable, Mum screamed dramatically. I don't know what to do with you anymore. I'm calling the police. Now it was Pam who was laughing hysterically. Rhiannon and I looked at each other exhausted as Mum spoke to Triple Zero and told them she needed someone to come and take her unruly, uncontrollable kids away. They said they would send a paddy wagon. Rhiannon told me to go back upstairs and pack a bag for Taylor and me. When I walked back into my room, Taylor was sitting on my bed, wide awake, crying. Are we leaving mummy again? She asked me. We'll probably just stay somewhere else for a few days. Maybe Uncle Ben's house, I said, as I put some clothes in a bag. Taylor had spent more time living away from mum than with her. She understood the drill. I took her to her room and let her pick some things to put in the bag. Then we went and sat on my bed and quietly watched TV for a while while we waited for the police to come. About half an hour later, Rhiannon walked into the bedroom with two officers. They must have been surprised to see that the uncontrollable children they were there to pick up were all waiting patiently and quietly with packed bags. Technically, the uncontrollable ones were downstairs, alternating between pashing, drinking and yelling obscenities about how awful we were. The officers gave us that sad look we had seen grown-ups give us so many times and told us they would take us to the station to work something out. Mum didn't even say goodbye to us when we left. The last thing I remember as we walked out the front door was hearing Pam the lesbian yell, Fuck off! while Mum erupted into fits of laughter. On the way to the station, I let Taylor nuzzle her head into my shoulder as I thought about all the times Mum had just been a mum. I thought about how she used to leave little presents on our beds for us to find after school. I thought about how she called us sweet pea and darling and would make amazing cakes on our birthdays. I thought about the time she gave me a special book as a surprise and wrote darling Rosanna in the front and how I still considered it the most precious thing I owned. I thought about how she used to stroke my hair when I was sick and the way she taught me to tie my shoes. I thought about how nothing felt as safe or as warm as a hug from her. I looked down at Taylor and thought about how, no matter what, Mum would always be the only person who felt like home to any of us, and how torturous it was to know that the feeling was never around for long. That for each special memory, for each special hug, there were always just as many sad and lonely moments when she hadn't come through. She was our only home, and we never knew if she was going to be there, and we were all just so tired. As soon as Pam's money ran out, Mum decided she was no longer a lesbian and wanted us back but it was too late. After that night, none of us would ever live with mum again. Rhiannon moved back in with her boyfriend in Lawson and would go on to work her ass off as a single mother of two kids. Isabella had already disappeared with her dad and wouldn't come back into our lives until she was a teenager. Taylor and I stayed with our wealthy uncle for a few days, during which time he decided to keep me and not her. I was sent to a fancy boarding school and Taylor was left to fend for herself in the foster system. 
She would languish there until, at 16, she was old enough to strike out on her own. I've never forgiven myself for not insisting that we stay together. She was so little and so alone. But my mum's brother was a successful doctor, and he wanted to spend a lot of money on my education. He thought I was special, and I found that intoxicating. Oh, mum, that night was messed up. You were just super drunk, obviously. Mm, I can barely remember it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's start off with you being a lesbian. No, I wasn't a lesbian. Well, There's nothing just... wrong. There's nothing wrong with being no. a lesbian. But... I feel like this is going to be like that Seinfeld episode. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> what Seinfeld episode? I don't know what you you're don't... talking about. I know. I think TV references take up 90% of my conversations. But was it because she was paying for stuff? No, I genu- genuinely liked the woman. Right. I did. I genuinely, I genuinely liked her. She was a very nice lady. She was nice, but she never. When she I, wasn't I just drunk, like to add to this conversation that you're again making out that I'm a using bitch. Oh no, I'm not. No, you are too. You were saying she never paid for the rent ever, and I object to you saying that and continuing. To say that in that book. I thought she had. I No, I, okay. I paid my own rent, thank you very much. I knew you weren't a lesbian. <clears throat> and so, like, I knew you weren't gay. And so the only explanation I could think of as to why you were dating this woman is that she was paying for stuff. I wasn't like, dating her. I you was, were, though. You slept was, in the same bed. I was Mom. friends with her. <laughs> so you're not bisexual or gay? <laughs> no. So you weren't sexually attracted to her? No. She was to you, though. Yes, I I have to concede to that. And you did, like, pass her sometimes, I saw. Well, very rarely. So what was the deal? Why? Was Was it just companionship? Yes, I already told you that. No, you didn't. Just before. So it was just companionship? Yes. For me, it was. Right. But, uh, like, she really upset me after this occurred. But you were... This, this occurred with the police. But you were part of that. Yes, I know. But you the, were laughing but and egging day, her on. The next day, I didn't egg her on. The next day, oh, I yes, sobered you did. up and I realised what she'd done and what my part in it was. She was hitting, like... I can't remember seeing that. I really can't. Rhiannon was getting whipped quite, with the Quite honestly, cord. I can't remember that. She went to punch me. And I, like, moved out of the way and you were laughing. I don't know. I, I, I can't. I and then to say. you called the police and told them we were uncontrollable children and they turned up with a paddy wagon thinking we were going to be these little sociopaths and it was just me and Rhiannon and Taylor, like, just quietly sitting there in the bedroom and, like, you were screaming, telling the police to take us away. You never wanted to see us again. Oh, I would never have said that. Uh, yes, you were. You did, Mum. I, I would mean, never have said oh that. God. You were really drunk. You, there's no way. You, you just said you don't remember. No, well, it's, uh, all right. Well, we can take your version of it then. And, yeah, then the police took us away and you were laughing and then Uncle came and picked us up at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning from the police station and took me and Taylor to his house, to their house. And um, 
Bella was gone by then with her dad. Oh, yeah, I know that. That's why you were drinking heaps, hey? Yeah, well. Mm. Like, because the drinking at that house got so bad. Yeah, I used to be out a lot. That was also when Grandma died. So that would have been hard as well. Mm. And <laughs> did you stop paying rent on that house? Because I remember Uncle was really pissed off that he um, rented the house in his name and then he ended up owing a lot of money on it. Um, basically, he told me that um, he was he was going to cease the lease. Mm. He was going to tell them that he didn't want the house anymore, so give them notice. So basically that left me homeless. So I think I stopped paying the rent, yeah. But I didn't stop paying the rent before that. You gotta understand he was pissed at you though. Yeah, and he hasn't yeah, and he warned me about my re- so called relationship with Pam and said if it didn't end, didn't cease immediately, he would never talk to me again and I was no longer his sister. And he stuck to that. Well I think we've spoken once and that was concerning Dad, that was last year. I haven't spoken to him since. Well, he did have to come and pick up your daughter oh, yeah, at that, 2 a.m. from a police station. Yeah, I know that. But saying he'll never talk to me again, well, he hasn't spoken to me again. And it hasn't been that bad for me. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, how, how can you even say to someone, you're no longer my sister? Well, you know, I think mum... Don't give me advice, thank you. I'm not I mean, giving for, you for advice. A start, for a start, he let me down really badly. He had promised to help me with the fees for the lawyer for Isabella and he reneged on that. That basically really stuffed things up. Yeah, but then I think seeing how bad things got after that, he probably thought he'd made the right decision. He never saw what happened. He came and picked us up at 2am. I know he came and, yeah, and that's what really pissed him off because it put him out. No, it's not it just because it put him it out, inconvenient. Mom. I just think you tend to minimise how badly your drinking and your subsequent behaviour affected people back then. I'm sure it would have. And I think that, you know, he just felt like he had given you so many chances. It wasn't the first time I'd gone to live with him. I'd gone to live with him before. He'd also taken us on weekends when we were kids, when we were living with our grandma. So he'd been stepping in and, like, looking after us for a, a long time. Yeah, God bless him. And I'm just, I'm not saying that he wasn't also, like, a dick to you, but, like, I think sometimes it feels like you don't think about what it was like for people on the other side of it and how, like, I think he just got I fed do. up and I it can, was, and it was easier can, for him to just cut you off. I can think about what it's like from the people on the other side of it. Listening to you read each chapter of this book, mm. I'm forced to think about it and put myself into other people's shoes, like yours, your sister's, mm. you know. Okay, fine. My my brother holds a grudge against me from um what 18 years ago and continue and continues to hold it. What's 18 years ago? 
That's when I last saw him. Eighteen really? years ago. Oh my yes. god! So long I haven't seen ago. him for eighteen years. That's true. You wouldn't have, would no, you? I haven't. I um. I spoke to him once about my, about dad, but apart from that, it really upset me that he didn't keep Taylor. And I and I it really I I have so much guilt about the fact that I didn't insist upon it at the time. But like. He thought I was so special and he thought I was so smart and he wanted to send me to this fancy school and he lived in this big mansion and I just felt so lucky. And so when he said, okay, well, like Taylor's going to foster care and you're staying here, I didn't, I didn't say anything. Like I just let it happen. Well, I don't think he had to. But I also, able to I mean, in, in hindsight though, like get stuffed, he should have. Like, I can't imagine having nieces and nephews of my own now. I don't think he really believed if that something, you were real nieces and nephews. If something, what? I don't because, think he really believed that. Because you're adopted? Yeah. Yes, he did, Mum. I don't Mom. think so. He loved me a lot. Well, he, he doesn't keep in contact with any of any of you kids. No, I know. But um, I just, I never understood why he didn't take her. And having nieces and nephews of my own now, like, if anything ever happened to Rhiannon, I would look after them all like just no question no matter how inconvenient or difficult it was for me and like taylor was an incredibly hyper little kid no i don't believe she was no she was and i don't believe taylor was whenever we were together she she was how old was she then like six or seven she was like super hyper you could tell that she frustrated them. They weren't used to children. Simple as that. That's what I mean. Ta- and Taylor was a lot of work. And she I wasn't. She was a good Can you child. let me finish? Fuck. God. I'm saying Taylor was a lot of work for them because they didn't have kids. That's what I just And said. I was 13 and they could just send me off to boarding school. Like that was easy. Like I think for them I was easy but it really pisses me off you didn't go to boarding school at 13 oh my god you're so argumentative today mum 14 sorry 14 anyway carry on i can't even remember what i was saying you just keep interrupting me for like the last 10 minutes you were talking about why are you, Taylor, you, you laughing about at Taylor being such a difficult child you think it's funny that i'm annoyed you're I wasn't saying with me. I'm used to it. I wasn't saying Taylor was a difficult child, Mum. I'm just saying that to them she seemed difficult because she was young and she kind of got in the way of their life and it was easier with me because they could just send me to boarding school. But I still think that's a shitty excuse. I still think they should have taken her. Because even if it was convenient, it was like their niece and she just got sent off to the foster system all by herself. And I get really upset when I think about it because I think, like, me and her went together and then not long after that she had to go to a foster home. And, like, she would have been thinking, why do I have to go? Do you know what I mean? Like, can you imagine how horrible that would be for a little kid? Like, I got to stay there. Like, she would have wondered so much about what was wrong with her, like why they didn't want to keep her. No, but she came back with me again after that. Not for long. No, because I got thrown out of Westmount, which is up in Laura. Rehab. Rehab. She was with me there. Why did you get thrown out of rehab? Um, dirty urine. What was, why? I went in there addicted to Xanax. Mm. 
and you weren't allowed to um, be on any kind of medication. So I think the first urine I had, they picked it up. I was going really well there too, but Taylor lived there with me. Yeah, but then you... The minute they found out, they... Um, that you were still taking drugs. Yeah, the guy who helped run the... It wasn't drugs. It was something, medication that I was on, and I, I continued to stay on it for 12 and a half years. Um, the guy who helped run the place used to work for Docs, and they rang up Docs straight away, called them to come and pick her up. Gee, that's fair. And that's when... Well, it wasn't really. <clears throat> I was thinking of taking her with me. And then I thought, no, I can come back in a month, you know. So Taylor will just have to be away for a month. Mm. So I won't just, because I was just going to take off with it, tell you the truth. So I did the right thing and then they told me, no, nah, a year, takes you a year to be able to come back here. So I thought, oh, my God. Come back where to the rehab? Westmouth, to go back in there. Yeah. You got you have to wait at least twelve months before you can go back. But then after that, you never tried to get Taylor back after that. No. Can I ask why? I think I'd had enough chances. But you still could have gotten her back if no, you wanted. I wouldn't have been able to get her back again. Yes, you could have. They always try and place kids. Yeah, the they were even yeah, when it's there ridiculous. Was no, there was absolutely no point anymore. I'd given up the house. I'd gone into there. I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have it. You know, nothing. Mm. So I mean, that's when I found a place with Rhiannon up on the Great Western Highway at Lura, and we moved into that. So I was there with Rhiannon. So yeah. at that point, none of your kids ever lived with you again. Like you didn't have. Only custody of Rhiannon. But I mean custody-wise. No. Mm. Does that make you sad? Of course it does. But you can't keep thinking about what happened in the past. Yeah. I mean, yeah, things might have been different, but... I just still feel so bad. Like, I was at this fancy-ass boarding school living in Uncle's massive mansion and she was stuck at that crappy foster home all by herself I still feel guilty though I feel like I I should have insisted if uncle wouldn't take her I should have insisted that I go with her you know like I just I feel like like I'll never not feel shitty about that there's a truth in that saying give me a child until they're eight or something and I'll make us a man or whatever that saying goes. What? Give me a child until they're eight. <laughs> yeah. And basically that makes a person how they're going to be yeah. in their adulthood. Those first eight years are incredibly important. Well, we're all pretty fucked then. No offence. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you don't seem to find that very funny. Mm. You've got to laugh, Mum. We're all okay now. You live with me now. I take care of you now. You don't take care of me. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You cook and clean. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know how I survived before you were there. Well, because you you, you know exactly how you survive. Tony cooked and cleaned. <laughs> well, you don't even eat. You hardly ever eat what I cook. Because you cook fish stuff and I don't eat I anything from fish. under the sea. I cook fish once a, once a fortnight. Well, it is weird how it's come full circle, though. After all of that, you've now ended up moving in with me. Yes, didn't your psychiatrist say something about that? Oh, you've you've been wanting to know what my psychiatrist no, says about that, and I don't tell not you. Not really, because I can work it out for myself. And you can't actually, because what you were telling me you thought he said is just so not what we talk about. I don't know what you talk about. It's obviously got something to do with you. See, now now you have the control of your life, and I'm living there. And like before, when you were a child. You, had totally no control and then my drinking would force you to be in situations that you didn't want to be in and you were, there was a lot of insecurity around that and now it's totally different because you're totally in control. That's the way I'd see it from being in mental health. I'd think of it from that respect. So that would make you feel a lot more secure. Mm. Okay. Well, I don't know. That's an interesting theory. (laughs) Well, that's the theory I have. I'll never tell you what we talk about. Oh, I don't expect you to. I mean, God, a conversation that's been going on for how many years? I've been seeing him since I was 17 (laughs) and I'm now 31. So how many years has this conversation been going on? 14. 14 years. Work out how many hours of conversation that is. It's a lot. It's like an old friend. Well, I've known him longer than... I've known him almost double the time I knew Dad. Like, Dad died no, when I was yeah, eight. But you, you see him infrequently now, don't you? Like um, once a month or something. Yeah, I used to go once a week, but now it's just whenever I can schedule it because I'm just so busy and important now. Your face. So, <laughs> yeah, Rosie, so is your mental health. No, I know. I go, I, go, I go as often as I can go, but... um. I have been going a very, very long time. Mm. But it has. You're, you're right. It's come full circle. It has. Getting back to what you were saying. So, yeah, those are all the hard, emotional, difficult child chapters done. And I really wanted it to be a chance to give you your perspective. And I'm sorry because I feel like there were points where I got a bit pissed at you. Well, I, you know, quite frankly, I got pissed at you too. Anyway, you know what we're like. We sulk and we don't talk and then, we, then we're we talking again an hour later. Yeah. But, I mean, I feel like I did not think I would still get angry at you about stuff that had happened in the past. But there have been points reading back over some of these stories and sitting here with you in front of me that, like, I've been angry. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to put you in that position. I didn't think I, think I would. I didn't sh- think I would get angry. It'd be like something, trying to get someone to understand something. Like, you could almost reach over from the desk where you are now and get me by the throat and go, Understand, you have to understand me. You have to understand what you've done to me. I know, but I also don't. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm, I'm not. Understand. I do have a lot more empathy for you than anger, but I will say that obviously there is still some anger because I've gotten annoyed 
at a few points doing this. Yeah. And I think these writing it down as well accentuates every little thing I've ever done to you, you know, mm. writing it into words rather than just thinking about this or that, stringing them all together, looking at them, rewriting them, in your, you know. Well, those are, I think, your hardest chapters, so. I know. Well, you don't really need me here anymore. No, we do. Why? Because now comes the fun part where you have to listen to me talk about my sex life. Yeah, but like, that <laughs> makes me really uncomfortable, Rosie. Good. It'll be funny. Like, seriously, I mean, I... No, it's not all you, sex for the rest of the book. read it with your mother oh present? There's a couple of chapters about that, but People mostly... People don't usually do that, Rosie. It's about, from here on out, the book is about how all of this stuff from my childhood affected my mental health in my adulthood. Right. So that's where we're headed next for the rest of the book. What's the next chapter? Next is boarding school. Boarding Fuckers. school. Yeah, that bastard. And in the boarding school chapter, you're a hero. What? We'll, I can't remember. We'll talk it. about it. In the next episode. Oh, what assholes, Mum. It was so bad. I just can't believe that. I get really sad reading that. I just can't believe that he got away with it. Yeah, I know. Well, I can. I mean, I, mean, I remember you'd call me and you'd be beside yourself that he was allowed back into the common room. Mm. And then I'd talk to the teacher and they'd assure me that they'd make sure it wouldn't happen again. And then it, then it would just happen again. Like they just didn't yeah. even care. Terrible situation. This is Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. Listener.